0: All right, well, good morning, everybody. Let's go ahead and start with a brief prayer, and we're going to end with a longer prayer, but let's start with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. amen. Gracious Mother, we come before you knowing that we are sinful before our Immaculate Mother, and we ask you to merit for us the graces to be sinless in this life, and to strive for the greatest heights of holiness that we might, on uh, on the day of our death, behold your beloved face and that you might usher us into the heavenly kingdom where we will be all in all with our heavenly Father. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Our Lady of Sorrows, pray, pray for us. us. Yeah, maybe. So I wanted, um, I wanted to start this morning, just in general, with, when it comes to uh, Marian devotion. As you all know, I try to provide some resources uh, whenever we gather. And so I pulled some, some, some great books off the shelf that I have found useful. Uh, in, my own, um, in my own growth of love of Our Lady, but also in, in knowledge of, of, of her, wonderful, um, her wonderful role in salvation history um, and uh, the role that she played uh, in the life of our Lord. And so Adrian von Speyer, Mary and the Redemption, this is a short work. I'm going to pass all these around in case anybody wants to jot down the names or whatever. Just make sure that one, two, three, f- there's five of them. So I need to get five back, not four, not six, <laughs> right? I need to get five back. Um, so Adrienne von Speyer, she's a wonderful um, theologian and mystic uh, who wrote Mary and the Redemption, a very short track. Um, this is the best uh, Ignatius Press's publication of John Paul II's encyclical Red- Redemptoris Mater, which he published in 1987, which I'm actually going to uh, reference this morning. Uh, but this has an introduction by... Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, also known as our late Pope Benedict XVI, um, and a commentary by Don't worry about it, Hans Urs von Balthasar. So you can ignore the commentary, but the introduction is but the introduction is great. So I'll start those two going around this way. Um, Warren Carroll uh, is a wonderful Catholic uh, historian and also the founder of Christendom College, and he has this wonderful section that was taken out of his. He has a six-volume history of the Church in the United States. I don't have it because I don't have the money to buy it. But a shorter part of that was uh, translated for Our Lady of Guadalupe in her role. And the nice thing is he doesn't just just dates and persons, but he also will tie together the theological uh, underpinnings of what's going on historically and its its influence in the church. This is called Our Lady of Guadalupe and the Conquest of Darkness and about the way that she overcomes paganism. Uh, of the Aztecs and the indigenous people in Mexico. Many people are familiar with, uh, Louis Marie de Montfort's, uh, consecration, true devotion to Marian consecration. Um, it's, uh, it's a spiritual, it's, it's tough. Uh, one of the more modern, um, re, capitulations of Marian, uh, Marian consecration was written by Michael Gately called 33 Days to Morning Glory. So 33 days. And it considers not only Marie de Montfort, but it works through Marie de Montfort's works, but also includes John Paul II, Maximilian Kolbe, and Mother Teresa. Is that it? Yeah. Mother Teresa. Yeah. I knew there was somebody else in there. Yeah. Mother Teresa. Yep. Yeah. Louis Marie de Montfort. Yep. Yeah. And so, um, the consecration that, uh, the more traditional ways of doing the consecration require towards the end lots of time in prayer. So this was written in such a way to be for the layperson who is, uh, very busy. And then if you want a, um, a decent dive, I mean, this is a more of a, I wouldn't say a textbook, but a much more of a commitment. It's called Mary and the Fathers of the Church by Luigi Gambero. It was translated from the Italian by Ignatius Press. What I like about this is it goes through and it talks about the themes, about how the, fa- how the church fathers in the first few centuries understood the role of Mary. Um, surprise, they believe the same thing that we believe today. We didn't. We don't, the church didn't make this up as we went. Uh, but then also in the back, about the last like third of the book is primary sources. So you can go through and read some of the poetry of the Desert, desert Fathers and some of the treatises. Um, so it's more of a, it's not like a cover to cover book to read, but something that I like to go to for inspiration. Um, So I'll start these two over here, and I'll start this one in the back. Remember, there's five books. I need five back (laughs) when we're all done. No coffee stains, exactly. (laughs) No coffee stains. Please don't drool on them. Um, And there's a lot more books out there. I'm sure uh, half of you are thinking of 16 other books that, you know, you'd be like, why didn't Father mention this one? Because those were just the ones that I grabbed off the shelf that I remember being influential in my own uh, study. Um, secondly, we have, um, we have a, a gentleman in the, um, in the triad area. He and his father are third order servites. And I'm going to get into the order the friar uh, servants of Our Lady here in a little bit is the genesis of the seven sorrows devotion. Um, and they're in the area, there is no formal third order group here that meets, but they did offer that if after this talk anyone would like more information on the third order of the friar's uh, the servants of Our Lady, they'd be happy to get information. And so I'm going to have uh, this sign-up sheet, you can put your name, email address, and phone number on in case um, after this when I go over some of what um, the Servites do, if you're interested in receiving more information... Um, there is a group. So you've probably heard of the third order Franciscans and the third order, um, my mind just went blank. There's lots of third orders. Carmelites, Carmelites exactly. Shoed or non-shoeed? That's the question. <laughs> they fight. They <laughs> um, do you all want me to pass this around or just leave it? I'll just leave it because you guys don't even know if you're interested yet. Um, <laughs> that's available. And then the same, uh, the same person also, and I'll talk about this a little bit, has over by the coffee, And um, the coffee and goodies, the coffees over here, the catechesis over there, is the Seven Sorrows Rosaries that they put together and drop off in parishes. And so uh, I'll be going over a little bit of this, and there's instructions in there about how to pray the Seven Sorrows Rosary. So there's plenty of them here for those who are interested. You may have seen those in the foyer of the church. They started appearing about a year ago, um, and now we know where they're coming from. That was probably the only devotion that when it showed up, I don't just throw in the trash because it wasn't approved. Anything else that gets left gets thrown in the trash. Somebody's been leaving shoulder wound of Jesus things around. I'm like, nope, trash. Okay. If you're that person, see me after catechesis. All right. Let's take a trip back in time. Florence, 13th century. Florence, nowadays, is considered what? I mean, it's considered kind of quintessentially, you know, uh, the distillation of a lot of Italy's culture. You know, they have architecture, they have fashion, they have their leather trade, right? Right now, if if you do a pilgrimage or a trip to Italy, Florence is up there in one of the top six cities that you're going to be visiting. You know, Rome is another one, Milan. A lot of people like to go to Venice, but, but Florence really is... Um, One of Italy's crown jewels when it comes to uh, when it comes to uh, modern day places to visit, also known for its very very beautiful cathedral and very large and beautiful baptistry that's separate from the cathedral. But in the 13th century, it was rather unknown. So in the 1200s, that's right when it started to come into influence. So you might have heard. The names mentioned, and if it's on HBO, there's no truth to it. But the Medici family, right, the Medici dynasty, so they were not known until the mid 1200s when they began to, uh, when they began their banking system and they began to grow, grow in political influence. Uh, but also at that time, we had walking the streets and writing beautiful poetry, Dante Alighieri, right, who wrote the Divine Comedy. Some people might have remembered having to read purgatorio or purgatory in, um, uh, in uh, public school. I know that was required for us. And uh, coming from a Catholic background uh, and knowing about the Divine Comedy, I wonder, why are we just reading Purgatorio and Inferno? Why aren't we reading uh, the Paradiso as well? Um, but anyway, so a famous poet. And Dante Alighieri, if you know historically, Uh, when it comes to culture and when it comes to language, up until his poetry became very widespread in Italy, that was the unifying factor for the Italian language in Italy. So before that, you had all these different dialects throughout all these different kingdoms in Italy, and yet it was Dante Alighieri that started what's now called Italiano Standard, as they would say in Italian, they'd go standard. And I'm like, well, of course they have to use the word standard because they don't have their own concept of standard in Italian. That was always the joke when they would use English words. I would say, of course they have to use English words because they don't have a concept for that in Italian. Like, they would say, what is lo plan? I'm like, well, of course Italians don't have a plan, right? So they have to use an English word for it. And, of course, they don't have a standard Italian, so they have to use an English word for it. But anyways. Um, so the language and the influence, it began to grow. Um, it began to grow above that in the uh, the. the the fame of the city began to grow above its neighboring cities of Lucca, which was known for its marble trade, and also Pisa, which was known for, because it's a port city, Uh, Pisa, which we all know for the leaning tower of Pisa, right? But Pisa for its its international trade, because it was a very accessible port city. Um, So, at that time, in the 1200s, before Florence became, you know, very well known, there were seven men, who were rich cloth merchants. Actually, not all of them were rich, but a number of them were rich. A couple of them were just more commoner folk. Um, They had families. They were husbands. They were fathers. They were pious and devout. And they would go to Mass often. They would gather together for prayer. But unbeknownst to each one of them, they all received uh, the same vision from Our Lady, a message from Our Lady that asked them to leave everything behind, to leave the world behind and to go away from the world in order to serve God more faithfully. So they did. They just dropped everything. They left, they moved outside of Florence to uh, a mountainside, and there they built a house for common life. And so they devoted themselves, um, because they were bound by this common vision, to leave the world behind to better serve Almighty God. Uh, they dedicated themselves to the Mother of God under the title of Our Lady of Sorrows, or the Mother of the Sorrows. And their community life was characterized by hospitality and compassion. Right? So they would go out, they would care for the poor, they would see the sadness in the people that they would serve, uh, and they would be able to also be hospitable in welcoming those who were traveling and to bring them in. And so they were preaching, they were spreading devotion to the passion of the Christ, and then connected to that, the sorrows of Our Lady, as Our Lady accompanied our Lord uh, in his passion. It's very important to to recognize that uh, the, the seven Servite founders, their feast day was celebrated this past Friday, the seven founders of the Servite order. They were friars in the sense that Dominicans are friars, Franciscans are friars, and people wonder, well, what's a friar? And somebody says, like, Friar Tuck? It's like, yes, kind of like Friar Tuck, because Friar Tuck was a Franciscan. But friars are mendicant preachers. Mendicant means that they take a complete vow of poverty, and they beg for everything they have. So they don't charge for their preaching. They don't, you know, you don't pay a fee to bring them in. You know, well, you do now, but uh, the Franciscans, anyways. Um, but they would beg for everything they have. So the Dominicans, the Franciscans, the Servites, the poor, uh, the poor servants of Our Lady um, of sorrows, of one of the first five mendicant orders that still has influence in the church today. Currently, they have missions uh, in on almost every continent. They also are involved in the education of youth and young people. They also have contemplative branches of their orders of both men and women religious who live a life of seclusion away from the world and support the active life of the missions and education by their prayers. But the Servites run the Marianum in Rome, which is an ecclesiastical university that is focused solely upon Marian theology. So I went to Santa Croce after I finished my general theology studies. The bishop kept me there because they have a program that specialized in liturgical theology. Father Malacher, I don't want to misspeak, and he had to leave. Um, he was studying spiritual theology. I think he was at the university that's named after um, Liguri. I'll have to ask him about that. But, anyways, these different schools have different focuses. Like the Gregorianum has, the Gregorian University has a focus in systematic theology and canon law. They also have the attached Biblicum, which is for the Bible right, in scripture uh, studies. So the Marianum in Rome, the Servites still run that today um, in order to develop um, the uh, church's um, theology concerning Mary and different studies into the role of Mary and her, her person. So also right around the 1200s, we're still in this historical, little historical uh, walkthrough to give a little background. <coughs> Excuse me. The rosary. The rosary was not yet necessarily in the form that we have it today, right? If you ask anybody to show you their rosary, what are they going to pull out of their pocket? They're going to pull out, you know, a, a string with beads on it. It's going to have a cross. It's going to have a few beads before it breaks into uh, the two strings. And then what do we have? How many beads for each? Ten. Mystery, ten. And then there's between each one is a bead for... um for the Our Father, the Glory Be, the Fatima Prayer, any other pr- devotional prayers that we add. And if you're Father Carter and you have lots of bling on your rosary so you don't forget your patron saints. Um, I had a family that made this rosary for me a number of years ago and they said, you've got to add your own medals to it. They said, more medals means more grace. I'm like, don't think it works that way, but okay. <laughs> but they have added up over the years. So, um, But the rosary, even in the 1200s, was not necessarily a a set devotion that was universally practiced in the same way throughout the church. We do know that early forms of prayer to Our Lady and different devotions were said like the Jews would have prayed them, and like other religions prayed them as well, which is just a cord that had knots in it or had beads on it. But there were different forms of the rosary. So the rosary that we know, which is the most uh, popularly prayed at this point, is the Dominican rosary that was given to St. Dominic of Osma, and St. Dominic, who then for- founded the Dominican friars. Uh, and so there we have uh, that rosary of St. Dominic with 10 Hail Marys, separated by an Our Father and a Glory Be, and with 15 mysteries of the rosary, which for many of us, we divide into five mysteries. And so if you meet any uh, traditional Dominican that still wears the traditional habit, the rosary that they wear on their habit is 15 decades. Because for them, it's the idea is they can pray throughout the day all 15 decades of the rosary. And then if we remember, um, if we remember well, and I don't remember well, I just remember I was in high school, so it was somewhere in the, uh, in the 2000s. Uh, in the early 2000s, that John Paul II added the five luminous mysteries to the rosary. Um, so there's a lot of opinion about that, but added the five luminous mysteries to the rosary for meditation. There was also, at the time, uh, the Franciscan crown. So the friars of St. Francis, the poor brothers of St. Francis, uh, they had the seven joys of Mary. So The Franciscan order had a rosary. Um, or a, a, knotted cords in which they could meditate upon the seven joys of Mary. So the Dominican Rosary, five, uh, five sets of ten, three sets of mystery, mysteries. The Jesuits had the Rosary of the Life of Jesus Christ, because the Jesuits want to make everything difficult. And they said, <laughs> mea culpa. No, uh, and the, the idea behind that was they wanted to, de- they wanted to minimize the idea of, Marian spirituality, and this is where we get the line, which we still say about the Rosary today: "It's the Gospel on a string." But when it's a Marian, uh, when it's set into Marian devotion, it's the idea of seeing the life of Christ through the eyes of Mary and seeing it with the love that she had, the concern, sometimes the angst. When we're talking about the the sorrowful mysteries of the Rosary, Um, but it is uh, those moments in which Mary and Christ together uh, gain for us, um, gain for us redemption and salvation. The Servite Rosary, coming from the friar, the uh, friar servants of Our Lady, focuses on the seven sorrows of Mary, and it is seven sets of seven Hail Marys. So, if you if you decide to pick this up because you're interested in trying it, you'll notice that you can't use it for a regular rosary because it only ha- it has seven sets of seven beads um, to pray. Um, and so, I just use that as kind of the historical background of. The rosary has not always been the rosary, right? It's had many different forms and many different uh, uh, iterations. So in general, um, I want to bring up, before we get into the actual seven sorrows, uh, very briefly, uh, John Paul II's um, Redemptoris Mater. In 1987, John Paul II wrote Redemptoris Mater. In order to begin that Pentecost in 1987 going into 1988, a Marian year uh, in which the church, like we just recently had the year of St. Joseph, right, or the year of the Eucharist, and right now the United States is in the Eucharistic Revival three years, to focus upon Marian spirituality and to recognize, and this is one of the themes, not only remembering uh, the role of Mary, but also preparing in the way that Mary prepares us for the future. Um, and so Radem Toris mater uh, was kind of a way of John Paul II saying, I know everyone says Marian spirituality is important, but let's start doing this right, and let's do it together as a whole church, that we don't minimize the role of Mary in our salvation. And so there's four basic themes within Radem Tori's mantra. If you get a chance to read it, it's not a very long encyclical. In terms of it being written by John Paul II, it's not very long. Um, but uh, But he speaks about Mary as a woman of faith. And he puts her in juxtaposition or in a comparative way with Abraham. Right? Because Abraham is called to give his only son, right, as a sacrifice, to give him over to God and to be sacrificed. And Mary, the same way, is asked to give of her only son, to give him back to God. And so, John Paul II brings up very brilliantly the fact that the Old Covenant begins with the sacrifice of a son, just like the New Covenant begins with the sacrifice of a son, in the person of Abraham and the person of Mary. And to do that, you must have faith in God. You have to have a complete faith in God that he, will, um, uh, that he will work all things to his glory. He also brings this up in order to say that faith requires suffering. And this is a very important aspect in John Paul II's pontificate because of his own, um, because of his, his own childhood, his own youth, in being in communist-controlled Poland, and the suffering that he saw and the ways in which um, in his own youth, uh, the Nazi Germany was um, uh, was so influential in Poland and during their occupation. Uh, so he brings this up a lot that faith requires, faith entails suffering, and so he shows how Abraham and Mary together. Abraham is a prototype of Mary, is kind of looking forward or a, 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 an anti-type of Mary. Um, shows a complete humili- uh, humiliation, not in the pejorative sense of being humiliated, but in the sense of that self-offering, uh, the word that we use in, in Greek, which is used for the crucifixion of Christ by St. Paul, is the word kenosis, or this self-pouring out. It's a giving up of oneself freely. Right. This is also used by John Paul II in um, In his catechesis, his Wednesday audiences, that were then compiled into the theology of the body, where he speaks about marriage being a kenosis where nothing is lost. Because at the same moment, when it's lived right, marriage is one spouse pouring out completely of themselves to the other, but at the same time receiving completely the other one. Right? So there's no loss in that kenosis, um, of marriage. And so, uh, in, in, in kind of the, the crowning part of this, uh, Reflection on Mary as a woman of faith. He brings up uh, Hebrews ten and also Psalm one twenty three, where he says, "Sacrifice and oblation I desire not, but a body you have prepared for me." And he reads that in a Marian sense, right? Sacrifice and oblation I do not want. So it's not in the death of someone, but it's in Mary being prepared as a body, being prepared for the Lord, so that it can then be poured out without losing, with without her losing her life. Um. And of course, he sees all of this in the, um, in the culmination of her, of her sorrows, which is, uh, the climax of her sorrows, is standing at the foot of the cross. Standing at the foot of the cross. He also brings up the theme of the sign of the woman from Reve- Revelation 12. Uh, and he goes back to the church fathers, uh, showing that the church fathers always saw in, uh, in Eve a prototype of, um, of Mary. Uh, or an anti-type of Mary, in the way that what we what we say in theology is the proto-evangelium. This is a famous Greek. Or this is a uh, fancy Greek word that means the first gospel. Proto, evangelion. So the first gospel. So the idea that you know God doesn't completely punish um, doesn't completely punish Adam and Eve. There's a there's a word of hope in there when he speaks about the serpent. He says the serpent shall strike at your heel, and you will crush his head. Or sometimes the translations are, "Your offspring will crush his head," but the idea there is there's still that hope, even at the beginning when uh, man loses the privilege of the of paradise and of the Garden of Eden. So history, according to John Paul the, John Paul II, the history of salvation uh, is never without the gospel, but the revelation of how that crushing of the head of the serpent would happen is gradual over time, and so he kind of looks at the beginning and the end, so Genesis and Revelation, and he has this beautiful reflection, I'm not going to go through all of it, but he has this beautiful reflection how the serpent, the blessing, and the curse are always there. The serpent, the blessing, and the curse. And he brings up Exodus and the fact that there's a blessing and a curse and serpents in Exodus, and that our Lord even speaks about serpents uh, when he teaches uh, in his parables. And then in Revelation, Right, where you have a serpent, the mature serpent, being the dragon um, that goes after the lady. So the serpent, the blessing, the curse, all history begins and ends with these three. Uh, thirdly, Mary's role of mediation, which is very difficult. Uh, in the 1980s, we were dealing on the heels of uh, the Second Vatican Council of being very ecumenical, uh, and agreeable with non-Catholics uh, in our. So he has to be very careful. He says, we do not want to deny that Christ, according to the letter First uh, Timothy, is the sole mediator. but he says if something is a sole mediator, it doesn't mean that it's the exclusive mediator of the covenant and of grace. So that God chooses to use Mary to cooperate uh, in the mediation of the covenant and of graces. And, and he says that Mary's mediation, because she is human, right, she's not divine, she's human, Mary's mediation is directly dependent on her ability to intercede for others. Just like our mediation of God's graces is dependent on our intercessory prayer, right, where we pray for others. And he brings up, of course, the most explicit mediation in the gospel, which is the wedding feast at Cana. and offers a beautiful reflection on that. But then he gets into the fact of mediation and Mary's concern for the church and her desire to continue to nurture the church uh, through her intercession in heaven. And he says that the fullness of female and motherly and the motherly dimension of the church resides in in Mary as the mother of the entire church. Right. So this idea of her uh, tender and motherly care in the church takes that on from Mary. And then he crowns all that out by saying, um, you know, if, if we think that Mary is separate from the work of the church, you've got to look to Pentecost, right? Because Pentecost was all the apostles gathered together, and Mary in their midst, and Mary in their midst, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. So Mary is not divided away from that uh, uh, that apostolic function of the church. That reminds me of. Of an uh, of an audience that um, Pope Benedict had back in two thousand and eleven. I remember this because I, I it was one of those days that I was just like, I'm going to click on this link and I read it. And I was like, that's really good. Um, and he speaks about uh, Pentecost. He's receiving the bishops from somewhere in Europe. I forget what region he's receiving them in the in what he did because it was a couple days after Pentecost. As he said. A bishop cannot be successful in carry out his mandate unless he is deeply and radically in love with the Blessed Mother. As soon as you step away from the Blessed Mother and love for her, you've stepped away from Pentecost and you have not, and you've denied the reception of the Holy Spirit to carry out the work. And then, lastly, he focuses on because he's proclaiming a Marian year, the meaning of Marian devotion. Um, so he says it is to remind us of her role but also to prepare us. And he, he mentions, and this is very important, that Mary's promises, if you ever look at her promises at Fatima, promises at Guadalupe, promises when it comes to um, the rosary, to St. Dominic, when it comes to the promises of St. Bridget, when she's asked to spread the devotion of Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows, Mary's promises always concern future salvation and heavenly glory. It's always about how, we, how she wants to aid us in gaining heaven. But for the world, she is always promising peace. But this is a peace, of course, that is not the absence of war or the absence of conflict. It is a peace that can only come by man being obedient to God's will. Because if man, if an individual is obedient to God's will, the storms of conflict around him cannot bother him or her. They cannot bother the person, right? Because at the end of the day, we recognize that we are right with God. Therefore, no earthly power can, can destroy our life. It can take away our earthly life, but cannot destroy the true life that we have been given by God. Okay. Any questions? I'm going to move into the seven sorrows if there's no questions. No? Okay. So these are the seven promises... That are given for those who meditate upon the seven sorrows and pray one Hail Mary after each meditation. Mary says to Saint Bridget of Sweden, I will grant, I will grant peace to their families. That sounds good. They will be enlightened about the divine mysteries. Again, that sounds good. I will console them in their pains and accompany them in their work. I will give them as much as they ask as long as it does not oppose the adorable will of my divine son or the sanctification of souls. I will defend them in their spiritual battles with the inter- with, uh, against the infernal enemy, and I will protect them at every moment of their lives. The sixth promise, I will visibly help them at the moment of their death. At the moment of their death, they will see the face of their mother. Seven, I have obtained from my divine Son that those who propagate this devotion to my tears and sorrows will be taken directly to heaven. So I'm a little selfish in this, aren't I? Mm -hmm. I have obtained from my divine Son that those who propagate this devotion to my tears and sorrows will be taken directly to heaven. Maybe I'm a little selfish. No, but it is a beautiful devotion. That's why I wanted to share it with you. So I'm going to go through the seven sorrows. And normally we do this as a, as a, as a way of doing catechesis. But instead, why don't we do this as a guided meditation so that we're actually praying this together? So what are, what did Our Lady ask? Our Lady asked for the seven sorrows to be meditated upon. And after each meditation, for one Our Father. So, the seven sorrows of Our Lady, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The first sorrow of Our Lady is the prophecy of Simeon, and we'll listen to Luke chapter two. The father and mother of the child were still wondering over all that was said of him by Simeon. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary. Behold, this child is destined to bring about the fall of many and the rise of many in Israel, to be a sign which men will refuse to acknowledge, and so the thoughts of many hearts shall be made manifest. As for thy own soul, it shall have a sword to pierce it. We ask in this mystery of the first sorrow of Our Lady for the virtue of humility and the gift of fear. Because Our Lady, by being told that she will have a sort of sorrow, pierce her heart, it's a confirmation of her faith. As was shown by John Paul II in Radem Taurus Mater, faith entails suffering. But Mary knows that through love and through faith, suffering becomes an offering pleasing to God. She also has a holy fear, that if she loses her faith, all suffering without faith is meaningless. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The second sorrow of Our Lady is the flight into Egypt, and we listen to the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise up, take with thee the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. There remain until I give thee word. For Herod will soon be making search for the child to destroy him. He rose up, therefore, while it was still night, and took the child and his mother with him, and withdrew into Egypt, where he remained until the death of Herod. In fulfillment of the word which the Lord spoke by his prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Meanwhile, when he found that the wise men had played him false, Herod was angry beyond measure. He sent and made away with all the male children in Bethlehem and in all its neighborhood, of two-year-olds and less, reckoning the time by the careful inquiry which he made of the wise men. It was then that the word spoken by the prophet Jeremy was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and great mourning. It was Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be comforted. Because none is left. But as soon as Herod was dead, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Egypt in a dream and said, Rise up, take with thee the child and his mother, and return to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So he arose and took the child and his mother with him and came into the land of Israel. In this sorrow of Our Lady, we ask for the virtue of generosity and a gift. For the cons- for, of a concern for the poor. It's important to recognize that Mary's sorrow here is tempered by Joseph's fidelity to God's word and his obedience. That she was able to have her sorrow tempered by his spiritual leadership, by his ability to quickly do what was good for the family and to lead them. And so in this sorrow we also pray for the fathers of families that they might always have the confidence to follow God's will for their family in all things. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The third sorrow of Our Lady is the loss of Jesus for three days. And we hear from the gospel according to Luke. Every year his parents used to go up to Jerusalem at the Paschal Feast. And when he was 12 years old, after going up to Jerusalem as the custom was at the time of the feast, and completing the days of his observance, they set about their return home. But the boy Jesus, unknown to his parents, continued his stay in Jerusalem. And they, thinking that he was among their traveling companions, had gone a whole day's journey before they made inquiry for him among their kinsfolk and acquaintances. When they could not find him, they made their way back to Jerusalem in search of him. It was only after three days that they found him. He was sitting in the temple in the midst of those who taught there, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were in amazement at his quick understanding and at the answers he gave. Seeing him there, they were full of wonder. And his mother said to him, My son, why hast thou treated us so? Think what anguish of mine thy father and I have endured, searching for thee. But he asked them, What reason had you to search for me? Could you not tell that I must needs be in the place which belongs to my father? In this sorrow of Our Lady, we pray for the virtue of chastity and the gift of knowledge. It's amazing to think that God permits Mary and Joseph to suffer the loss of Jesus. That they might know the experience of loss and in a certain way be prepared in a detachment to our Lord. Knowing that they would eventually have to completely give him up, especially Our Lady. Not only giving him up for those years of public ministry where he would leave home in order to preach and teach and reveal God's love, for Israel and for the world, but also that she would eventually have to literally give him up in her future sorrows, give up his life without being able to say a word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The fourth sorrow of Our Lady is the carrying of the cross. We listen to the words of the Holy Gospel according to John. So Jesus went out carrying his own cross to the place named after the skull. Its Hebrew name is Golgotha. This is sometimes also called Jesus meets his afflicted mothers in the stations and sometimes in the rosary of Our Lady of Sorrows. Even though... Scripture does not tell an explicit moment of Jesus meeting his mother. Traditionally, in the tradition of the church, this is always a moment in which they would have at least gazed at each other, have met eyes, and they would have seen in each other their sorrow. We pray in this sorrow for the virtue of patience and the gift of fortitude. So Mary is part of the crowd, as tradition tells us. And it's very important that we recognize That her heart, in a certain way, is paralyzed by sorrow, but also paralyzed by her faith. Where she has to completely detach herself from her own will, the will of a mother. A mother who would have wanted to cry out for them, to not treat him so poorly, to let him go, to free him. Who would want to cry out for her son's liberty. And yet, she knows that this is all part of God's plan, and she accepts this sorrow. She makes a sacrifice of her own will, so that God's will, the will of her Son, may be done. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The fifth sorrow is the crucifixion of Jesus There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side with Jesus in the midst. Then Pilate wrote out a proclamation which he put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This proclamation was read by many of the Jews since the place where Jesus was crucified was close to the city. So it was then that the soldiers occupied themselves and meanwhile his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleophas, And Mary Magdalene had taken their stand beside the cross of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing his mother there in the disciple tomb whom he loved, standing by, said to his mother, Woman, this is thy son. Then he said to the disciple, This is thy mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his home. Jesus, drinking the vinegar, said, It is achieved. And he bowed his head and yielded up his spirit. In this sorrow of Our Lady, we pray for the virtue of temperance and the gift of counsel. Here, as Christ is crucified, He makes clear Mary's universal motherhood for His entire church. For each of His disciples, He entrusts all of His disciples, all of those who are faithful to Him, to the tender, nurturing, spiritual good of His mother. And He entrusts His disciples to her care. But also, he places an obligation on his disciple, and John takes up that obligation. From that moment, he took her into his home. By the grace of this mystery, may we too welcome Mary and take her into the home of our heart, so that in each moment of our life, we're never separated from her, and therefore, she may never allow us to be separated from her son. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The sixth sorrow of Mary is when Jesus is taken down from the cross. With him was Nicodemus, the same who made his first visit to Jesus by night. He brought him. He brought with him a mixture of myrrh and aloes of about a hundred pounds weight. They took Jesus' body then and wrapped it in winding clothes with the spices. That is how the Jews prepare a body for burial. In this mystery, we ask for the gift, for the virtue of fraternal charity and the gift of understanding. Another tradition here is that Mary would have held Christ's body in her arms, which is where we get the famous pieta and the different images of Our Lady holding the body of our Lord with her tears. And if we think about it, it is her flesh and blood. There is no other biological material in the conception of Jesus, so she is holding her own flesh and blood literally in her hands. And so we consider the weight of the reality of God's plan hitting her soul. The weight that she would have felt, not just in the body of our Lord, but in her soul, in recognizing that her sorrow would be used for the salvation of Israel. Her sorrow was not to be an end in itself, but to be a way in which the joy of the resurrection may be realized. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. The seventh sorrow of Our Lady is Jesus is laid in the tomb. In the same quarter where he was crucified, there was a garden with a new tomb in it, one in which no man had ever yet been buried. Here, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus because of the Jewish feast on the morrow. In this sorrow, we pray for the virtue of diligence and the gift of wisdom. This is Jesus being laid in the tomb, the last sorrow, but it's also the bridge to the joy of the resurrection. And we can consider from Luke's Gospel and what he has said about the crucifixion and burial of our Lord, the disciples don't all scatter. They go together to the upper room. They gather in prayer together along with Mary. Some do leave, as we're told. They're going to Emmaus, or on the road to Emmaus. They leave Jerusalem, but on hearing of the Lord and recognizing him, they run back. And so in our own sorrow, in our own work, in our own toils, might we always uh, invite Mary into our prayer when we gather together, that she might be the rock by which we are connected to Christ and we never fail to love him. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The seven sorrows of Our Lady is, is certainly not something that, you know, should drive us to despair or should uh, upset us, but a way in which we recognize that as we walk, as we say in the Hail Mary, as we walk through this valley of tears, that not only our Lord but Our Lady uh, experienced um, all that we have experienced, um, but also has experienced it in such a way uh, that it really touched the depths of her heart. If we consider the fact that original sin causes us to um, turn away from experiencing the, the, the truth of the emotional state under the guise of reason, uh, or under the command of reason, Mary, who is properly ordered to carry out perfectly God's will in her life, would have felt a sorrow uh, that's indescribable would have felt a sorrow that really touched the deepest um, parts of her soul. Um, and so I, I do find this to be a way um, you know, to kind of shake up our normal devotions of Our Lady, especially if we've become very um, used to the, the meditations uh, of the mysteries of the Dominican Rosary, a way to change that up, and also an invitation. Maybe it's something uh, that you might find profitable during Lent, Um, or at other times in your life in which you also experience uh, sorrow. So just a reminder before we close, um, we do have, uh, for anyone who would like to receive information on the third order of the Friar Servants of Our Lady, there is a sign-up sheet that's up here on the desk. There's uh, some of the books that had been passed around. One, two, three, four, five. Thank you for not stealing one. (laughs) And also, over by the coffee is the uh, rosaries of Our Lady of Sorrows. Okay? The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, everybody.